You are listening to the Enormocast. The Royal We here at the Enormocast would like to remind you that there's three great ways to get shit you need and get the Enormocast a little something as well. Bonfirecoffee.com. Enter Enormo at checkout for great small batch fresh roasted coffee. PeterWGilroy.com. Enter Enormo at checkout for amazing climbing-inspired jewelry and accessories for yourself or that special belayer. Emblazebecs.com, enter Normalcast at checkout to just say no to belayer neck pain. And the great thing about supporting these companies is they are the little guy. In fact, a couple of them are just one person over there at that particular little company. So you're supporting them. They are climbers. You're supporting the Normalcast, and you're getting great stuff. It's a win, win, win. Very rare in this day and age. So please consider supporting them, supporting the Enormacast, and supporting all our sponsors with your patronage. You know, there's too many ways that ice climbing is miserable. The screaming barfies, somehow being sweaty and freezing at the same time, and the Norwegian death metal your partner is cranking on the dark drive to the trailhead. But with help from Sportiva, your boot performance and the comfort of your precious piggies can be resolutely checked off the blood-scrawled manifesto of ice climbing horrors. From big routes to next-gen tech climbing, Sportiva has created a line of futuristic mountain boots with old-school reliability and durability, like the warm all-arounder, the Nepal Cube GTX. So let's face it, at some point in the day, you're going to moan with pain. But let's make sure it's not because of your feet. Swipe right to Sportiva.com or your nearest high-end climbing retailer to slip your hooves into a pair of these majestic boots. And remember, when you support Sportiva, you support the Enormacast. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... uh the Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is about 1030 here in Colorado on February 4th, and this is episode 122 of the EnormoCast. On today's show, speed climbing master and current nose record holder Hans Florine. Yes, him and Alex Honnold have the record, but uh, Mr. Florine is not a flash in the pan. He's held the record many different times over the last, last uh, decade or more, so... You know, those guys are running about 2, 225, 224, something like that, which, you know, let's face it, is uh, about the time it takes most of us just to, you know, wake up and get out of bed and get some coffee in us in the morning, feel like human beings. 
They've already done the damn nose by the time you're done doing your morning poop. I mean, think about it. You're still sitting in the calf in Yosemite, wondering what you're going to climb that day, and these dudes come rolling in for some late morning waffles after having climbed the nose. Hot damn. But of course, there's a lot more to Hans than just climbing the nose. He's been around quite some time, sort of the quintessential California climber for a long time, and uh, was an early competitor back when competitions were fledgling, especially here in the States. Uh, Was also a champion man-to-beat speed climber back in those days as well. So before we get to that, I've got two quick pitches. One is for Hans's book, just out. Uh, he wrote it with Jamie Moy, and it's called On the Nose, A Lifelong Obsession with Yosemite's Most Iconic Climb. You can go to onthenosebook.com, or you can check it out on Amazon. Either way, check it out. Hans would appreciate it. And then my pitch for the podcast. I want to remind you that if you love the podcast, if you love the Enormous Cast, or even if you don't love it, but you listen anyway, you hate listen, maybe a little bit. Anyway, if you're listening, please consider supporting the show by going to enormacast.com. Click on the help out tab. There's some stuff you can do to increase its reach also to support it financially if you wish. Thank you very, very much. Without you, there would be nothing but a voice and a void. All right, folks, let's get to uh, the interview with Hollywood Hans Florine. We're rolling. Okay, fantastic. You just told me you had some some uh, health issues yesterday. Yeah, as a dad, you know, you think you get them all the time, but I'm super healthy, I think. Um, first first cold in 20 months. A few days ago, way to start off 2017. How many kids do you have? I got two kids, a 13-year-old boy and a 16-year-old daughter. She passed her driver's test on Monday, oh. so she's psyched. That's awesome. She wants to drive me up to Yosemite. So. Awesome. So I kind of wanted to start with that. Um, we're we're going to get into the nose, obviously, talk about your book and everything else. But what does your life look like outside of climbing? You have two kids. We just got there. And uh, you live in the Bay Area? I live in the Bay Area. Lafayette. Uh-huh. Um, one of 24 Lafayettes in the U.S. Okay. He's the French general that helped Washington yeah. defeat the Brits. Yeah, he was so. a big fan of the of the of the American idea. Yeah, well, it's probably just that it was anti-British. is yeah. all that he liked, but right. whatever. Um, so there we digress from climbing. I live in Lafayette. It's twenty-two miles east of San Francisco. Total suburbs. Um, very white. Very no crime. Um, low culture. But um, we just hop over the hill and we're in the- Berkeley, so we're good. Do those things happen? They have to go together. Low no culture, crime, no, no crime. culture, yeah, a little bit. If you have culture, you have edgy people. Yeah. Is that how, that's actually, that's actually probably sort of true. That's like a sociological observation. Yeah. That, I mean, we might be one of the only little townships that has more than 50% Republicans in California. Okay. You know? Yeah. A little um, bastion of conservatism. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, and what, what's your, what's your business? Uh, my business is diverse. I mean, I wear a lot of hats. I rent a home in Yosemite. I I go and speak around the country to banks, to pharmaceuticals, to universities, to kindergartens, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, Love getting in front of people and sharing stories about Mm -hmm. climbing. Mm -hmm. 
but my, I guess, day job is um, Touchstone Climbing's good enough to let me manage or lead one of their communities. The Diablo Rock Gym is out there in the East Bay. So oh, cool. That's just seven miles from my house out in Concord is where it's at. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, so yeah, so you've got at least this kind of like thing that's connected to your community there versus flying around the and talking to strangers. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was a yuppie, uh, kind of not your normal dirtbag climber. I was a yuppie and worked down in LA with suit and tie for a couple of years and commuted out to Joshua Tree. And I, I kind of thought when I took off and went full-time climbing, and I stress I went full-time climbing in the 90s, not I didn't become a professional climber because sure. that really is an oxymoron, especially back then. I mean, I pounded nails to, to go climbing, right? Right. But um, I wanted to stay out of climbing as a business or as work because I didn't want it to taint how much crazy fun I had climbing. Right. You know, I'd go and do taxes or do uh, accounting or marketing or anything other than teach climbing or work at a climbing gym because I thought if I worked at a climbing gym that it would ruin it for me. But uh -huh. it's taken my maturity up to when I was in my 40s to finally go, I should manage a climbing gym and see how it goes. And now I'm six years at it and just love leading the community and introducing people to the psych of climbing, I guess. So you're just kind of like gave me a little bit of a timeline. So you were working in LA right? as, as just a, a working guy. Suit and tie, were you climbing then? I was climbing, yeah. Okay. Learned to climb in college, so. Okay. And then at some point, did it look like somebody who, you know, just got tired of that thing and was kept being drawn more and more to climbing? What was sort of the thing that, that got rid of your tie? Well, what was fantastic is that right then in the late 80s was the first time they had competitions. They had the first ARCO um, in Italy. They had the first, you know, national event in the U.S. And I remember we submitted re resumes to Jeff Lowe, um, to decide who could go to the nationals. It wasn't like, you know, there had some ranking system because there was no competitions to rank people from. So, you know, I'd, you'd send in, oh, I onsided this 12B in Joshua Tree or something ridiculous, you know, or I climbed some cement structure that we put up underneath the freeway. Like how, how is Jeff Lowe supposed to decide you should right. go to a comp, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> or I won a event on the side of Sport Chalet, you know, a 20 foot high wooden structure that 10 people attended. So like, what does that matter? Right, you know? right. Um, but I went to the national event at Snowbird and I did okay. Uh -huh. And I just, I just freaking loved it. Uh -huh. I didn't do exceptionally well. I mean, a one speed event, but like, I, I don't remember what I did in difficulty, probably 10th place or something. Right. Or 15th, it didn't so, matter. So you're talking about like the infamous Snowbird. Right. Alinger pulls the roof. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And Goodwin, I wasn't Dan Goodwin yeah. takes the giant whipper. Yeah, and I wasn't stuff. good enough to go and compete against the international okay, cool. crowd the next day or the next weekend whatever it was, but I just loved the whole atmosphere. I and mean, I came from a competitive background in track and field and other sports. So okay. I'm like, "Oh, this is incredible." And I'd go to every competition I could possibly anywhere on the planet that year, which was probably a total of 5. Uh -huh. Right. Now you can go to three competitions a weekend the whole year, right? But, um, and I was out in Joshua Tree trying every sport route there was out then, which wasn't very many, you know, Cosgrove and those guys were putting up everything and I'd run around and try to do as many different routes as I could. And then I was getting really successful at my business. I was just a production manufacturing engineer. I wasn't an engineer, I was business, but line flow, increased productivity manager. And I was doing such a good job. My boss brought me in 
with his boss up in front of him. And this is the scene that just ingrained in my head like this big why in the road of your life. And I've been thinking for two weeks, spring's coming, it's February, you know, spring's coming. I'm like, this is the year I'm just going to give my boss two weeks notice and I, I'm just going to go full-time climbing and buy a van and just go full-time climbing. How can I tell him? Because he really loves me and I'm doing great work here. And out of the blue, he invites me into the conference room with his boss. And he's like, Hans, you're doing so good. We want to give you this huge raise. And, oh, you know, all these responses, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I, I, and then I had to just spell it to him in front of his boss, like, I'm going to quit because I'm going to go climbing. Wow. And his boss was a white, uh, a woman. Um, and she, she's like, but why would you do that? You can't make money doing that. And I just was like, you guys don't get it. You know, I don't care. I was just... 25 or 24 and I didn't have any debt. I'd paid all my debt off and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to go. Right. And that was the big turning point. So the nineties were made up of running around sport crags in France, Germany, the U S um, dabbling around in the world cups in the fall and then coming back to the U S for nine months and then dabbling around in the fall in Europe and back and forth in the nineties. How I got this string of things in Yosemite is kind of odd because 90s was really a focus of sport climbing for me. Yeah, I was actually, the, I was about to ask you that question yeah. because it, I mean, you're so associated with Yosemite uh, and the Bay Area and everything else. Yeah. Although a quick look at your resume, you know, shows that the, the competition climbing and stuff was this, this springboard. Um, but yeah, the 90s, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like there were sport, was sport climbing everywhere in the United States. Yeah. You know, and and I, I don't know, I guess, did it put you, did you ever find yourself, were you one of those persons that were a bit at odds with the community? Because, you know, I'm thinking about Joshua Tree, like when, when, when Scott and those guys were bolting roots out there, that was, you know, like there were definitely hackles raised over that stuff. And Yosemite, of course, has always been this place where it was like late to the, late to the game. Or did you feel that or were you just like, no, nah, this is what I want to well, do. I don't here's care my position on as the sport climbing thing grew. So as sport climbing grew, one of the things that like people would do, you know, whatever you want to call it, people wanted to get attention for one reason or another, whether they told good jokes, they put up first ascents or they on-sided things. Well, I just didn't have the patience, I think, is the n- nice diplomatic way to say do red points or okay. to put up roots you know you got to bring a drill with you and all this hardware and stuff i'm like i'll just go on site everything and as a result like i never tried any of the hard 513s of the day in the late 80s or early 90s because i wanted to move on to something else i was just excited to on site the next 12a right and um so I think in some ways I didn't run into the controversy of, are you putting up first ascents in the wrong place? Right. Sure, Cosgrove would go put up something or Randy Levitt would, and then, you know, I might try it the right. next week, but I wasn't the one who put the bolts right, in, right, so right. it's fine, right? Yeah, you just clipped them. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, and So in a lot of ways, you actually weren't really sport climbing because, I mean, sport, to me, sport climbing is, is, at least nowadays, now this is all all kind of evolved, but, you know, clipping bolts in sport climbing in my mind are kind of like part of the same discipline. But to me, always sport climbing is that like try it over and over again, you know, that, that kind of thing. So and, that's, yeah. And it, and it's in a, in a lot of ways that also pissed a lot of people off this idea that you would just like work a route, you know, because this is, well, 
early in these days in the right i was there when like yo-yo that's not oh you know you when you fall you have to lower to the ground right that was the ethic when i learned to climb we'd get up on roots um those who know santa barbara you know we'd go back to neanderthal and these other roots out there that was like the infamous the 11d right that nobody can do or maybe it was 12a we didn't know how to rate things back then but like you'd go up halfway and like, oh, you can't try the top half. You have to lower off. Like, oh, wait a minute. I want to touch the holds on that top half, you know? Um, And I I had to go through the thing because my mentors or our people who taught us how to climb said, no, you have to lower off. But we we broke through and said, okay, we can hang and do the top eventually. And I went through that thing, which is totally foreign to kids now. Like, why wouldn't you continue to the top? It is kind of... Yeah, yo-yoing, and I've talked about it on the show before, but uh, the idea that the the idea was just to explain it because we are definitely we're going into the sort of the dark arts of the past. But yeah, you had to if you fell, you came to the ground, but you left your rope up, and you could start climbing again to try to push it further. Yeah. But you never hung there and tried the moves or like pulled through or any of these things that we do today. There was like this ethic of like you lost the fight. You failed. Now come back to the ground and, and like, you know, give it a fair means ascent from the ground. But. Oh, well, and we should point out there was the purest beyond that, right? That you had to pull your rope. You right. can't go to your high point. You have to start at the ground again. Sure. Yeah. So some days you never <laughs> saw the top of the route. Oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. For, I mean, that happens still in track climbing. But um, but yeah, so like well, you you had mentioned some contemporaries um, like Scott Cosgrove is no longer with us, but uh and Randy, who's been on the show, but who else, who were like sort of your, the, the folks you were in with in terms of climbing? Like, who can you point well, out? Not, not, even, t- not even famous people, you know, the bros you had. Well, I, I can't start without saying Steve Schneider. I mean, okay. he was the crossover person, right? He was the most accomplished big wall climber in Yosemite, the first guy to solo the nose in a day by himself. Like, and he's setting up 513s in Tuolumne, right? And he's one of the t- first three national course setters. So he's doing sport climbing competition. He's putting up brand new routes, um, paragliding. I don't know. He's just Mr. Adventure, right? So right. He's, and he's then going down to Patagonia and doing alpine stuff. So he was kind of the first Tommy Caldwell, I guess. I don't right. Know. So Steve Schneider climbed a ton with uh, Peter Coward, not Peter Croft, but Peter Coward of the Bay Area, Greg Murphy of the Bay Area, Jim Hurston of the, okay. the Bay Area. All those three are dads with kids with 50-hour-a-week jobs, right? Right. That were commuting from the Bay and climbing in, in Yosemite all these big routes on weekends. And those guys totally inspired me because they were doing all the stuff I was, but yet they were returning home on, you know, Sunday and mowing the lawn, playing with kids. And I be it kind of gave me the impetus to write my book with Bill Wright about speed climbing, which was just fitting more climbing in. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I became one of them, right. Got married, had kids and started working in the Bay area. So, right. and realized like I can still run up to Yosemite and do these huge, big climbs. Mm-hmm. So in this evolution where you're doing all the sport climbing, comp climbing, you're also, is this also where you're sort of laying the groundwork? Are you, are you trying to be one of these all around guys that, like Steve I wasn't actually you. trying to be, but uh-huh. I just found myself, hey, Steve would invite me up. And like, hey, let's go do, I don't know, the heart route in a push. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Okay. And okay. I just tie in at 4 a.m. in the morning. And here I was stuck for 28 hours with Schneider and Peter right. Coward, right, doing this route. 
And then it'd be the same thing with Greg Murphy and I don't know, somebody else. We'd get on the shield and like, I'd just tie in at the base and then, you know, I'd rest a day and go to some sport climbing crag, uh-huh. Sonora or something, you know? Yeah, that's cool that you were able to kind of have this like, I mean, in that era, in all eras, even now, but I think everyone kind of had their climbing compartmentalized in a way when I started too, that has has gone by the wayside to a certain extent. But, uh, you know, it was like, you do this kind of climbing and I do this kind of climbing and like, we make fun of each other or we hate each other yeah. or we don't like each other or whatever. Um, but you seem like you could go day to day just yeah. like, oh, I'm on the shield and I'm sport climbing. <laughs> I, I don't, that was a little bit unusual for, for those days. Probably not as unusual as it is now. Okay. But, yeah. Right. And I will say I make fun of boulders. Um, so yeah. I, I have bouldered and I've done bouldering events, mm-hmm. but I, I think bouldering is training for climbing. <laughs> right. Yeah, me too. But that's because we're old. <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. also because at least in my part, I'm not very good at yeah. it. So it's much easier to make fun of it yeah. than, uh, you know, than to go and yeah. try to do it. All but I'm a total heretic or whatever. Right. Hypocrite is like, I like campusing, which is actually training for bouldering, right. you know, right? It's even one less move than bouldering. Right. So You like campusing. I, I like campusing. All right. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's because it's so quantitative, right? Like you can really measure how bad you are and then like improve a little bit by just the slightest measurement, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you know, this is all going to lead, this is all going to lead, no, it doesn't have to lead to it, but like the Olympics, right, got mm-hmm. announced in August and there's all this out there about like, oh, it's bad that we're in the Olympics because it gives too many, more people will be there or it's bad because of the format, like people have to speed climb and boulder and, and difficulty climb, right, or sport climb. And I'm like, well, you know, they're not like asking you to climb Everest and then go bouldering, right? right. So like, <laughs> and they're complaining like, well, in a mile runner would never be asked to do a hundred meter dash, right? As if like, that's a good comparison. Well, whether it's a good comparison or not, like we're not being asked to climb El Cap. And if a 3000 foot endurance climb was in the Olympics, I'd be busting my ass to train because I'd be psyched. You yeah, know? right. Um, but they're not, you know, they're just, it's all things that require something from six seconds to three minutes, right? right. So. so now you, you have this <clears throat> kind of, a little bit um, out of the ordinary background in in competition speed climbing, and uh, I'd say it's out of the ordinary because I it's never really been a a huge discipline for Americans. Right. Um, do you see that? I mean, you just brought up the Olympics, and I was reading about that. And I'm like, you know, I wonder if some of these you know these boulders and these sport climbers can turn to you in the next four years for some training in this because who else are they going to go to? They better. Yeah, they better turn to me. Now, I mean, we have a team at our gym and mm-hmm. at Touchstone has 11 gyms and we have a really good team and there's there's people practicing on speed because the juniors recognize it and have for a long time and it's, it's part of the games. Mm-hmm. But here's my comment on like, well, why aren't Americans as good at it as Europeans or whatever? I went... 15 speed competitions never having lost one even going and taking on the famous jackie gotta from france who never lost a speed event you know that was his first second place until you rolled up yeah and then of course you know months later i went to arco and then i got my tail beat you know um i took second place or something to and that was funny because i won i'm gonna go tangent all the time on these stories like 
do it. That's what uh, this is for. Arco Italy, I won 3 million lira for taking third place or something in the speed event. And I'm like, oh my gosh, 3 million lira. I'm psyched. 400 Which, bucks or something. Yeah, and now uh, people listen to the show. Well, what about the euro? Well, they didn't have the euro yeah, back not, then. No euro, yeah. It was it was actually like $1,200. Oh, nice. And That's so I was ass. set for like three months in yeah. Europe with that. It was Easily. super fun. And I'm like, what did they get for first? My God. Yeah. Did they get a billion lira? You know, I don't know. So. What, but, year, what years were that? That was 92. Two, yeah, because I won the world championships in '91 against Jackie Goduff, and then Arco felt compelled to invite an American, well, because I was the world champion. Right so here's post. a comment though about speed: like the Eastern Bloc folks realize, like, wait a minute, you know, they're giving away a rope at at World Cups. They give five thousand dollars to the winner of difficulty, and they give a rope to the winner of speed, <laughs> or they might give them five hundred Deutschmarks, right? But 500 Deutschmarks is, that's like half a year's salary in some Eastern European countries. So they're like, well, shit, we could train just speed and make a living, right? right? And that's what happened in the X Games is I won the first three X Games in a row, even though there were Eastern Bloc people competing, but then they raised the prize money to, I don't know, $5,000 at mm-hmm. the X Games and Vladimir came over and won. That year is the first time I ever lost on U.S. soil. And it's, well, those guys just could train speed all the time. Right, yeah. And and suddenly the incentive became like a a big deal for those guys. And I remember it was $5,000 and you could look up in Ukraine, the average household income was $3,000 or something for a year, right? Right. So you're like, if the prize money here for speed or difficulty was... $30,000, you know, you'd have a lot more competition, right? right? right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the Olympics because I I definitely wanted to ask you about that. But let's roll back a little bit to your climbing and start talking a little bit about your obsession with the nose. So I'm handling here my new book, On the Nose, A Lifelong Obsession with Yosemite's Most Iconic Climb. By me, of course, with Jamie Moy, who's an adventure journalist writer Mm -hmm. from Boulder. Mm -hmm. Um, the book marks my hundred hundredth ascent of the nose. I'm like, why a hundred times? I tell people like, the nose is like the Everest of rock climbing, right? Everybody wants to go do it once. If you're a mountaineer, you want to go to Everest, right? If you're a rock climber, you you got to go do the nose. It's just the most incredible route. Not it's a, just it's a huge hole in my resume. Oh my! I was God. in Yosemite <laughs> for years. I climbed El Cap ten times. Always, always like slow whack and dangle you know day on two pitches a day type climbing Mm -hmm. and i i never got i never did it but i'll I'll get it done i'll get it done i swear but yeah it's actually the biggest most like gaping hole in my resume for someone who like climbs in the black climbed in yosemite like big root granite climber the downside is that once you've done it every route pales in comparison so you so there is Good logic in putting it off. Mm-hmm. Good job, man. Thanks. Yeah, I can. I can like look forward to something. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so yeah, you're you're talking about the nose. So my, I should. What brings up like the nose? Why do it multiple times? I didn't like big wall climbing. I tried the Salathe and was stuck on it and lost weight and ran out of food and bivied hanging in my harness and I failed to climb the nose my first time. Got up four pitches in fourteen hours. That's good like to we were, know for everybody. Yeah, I was at Sickle Ledge and it was getting dark. It was like, you know, we probably averaged about three hours a pitch, right? Or four hours a pitch. And 
we knew we couldn't make it. So we just repelled down and went back home to college and came back the next year and took like three days on it. But I thought it was vertical camping. And I thought like, it's just, you know, you live in California, you're a climber, you need to say you've done El Cap. So, or you need to say you've done the nose. And it, it wasn't that negative, like, oh, bum, I got to go do it. But like, you should do it. You know, you should do this vertical camping thing. And I was kind of done, but something stuck in my head. Like, I didn't know Steve Schneider at that time very well, other than I saw that guy. You know, he's that famous blonde shapoopy guy um, at the at the competitions or whatever. And he's putting up all the hardest routes. And I said, hey, Steve, you know, will you go up the nose with me sometime and let's just see if we can get the speed record because some Europeans own the record and it should be owned by Americans. And the only reason he said yes, I think, was because he thought I might do it without him. And so we went and did, got on the route, and I fell like a 25-foot fall my, on the second pitch. And I know he must have just been scratching his head like, <laughs> can we just wrap off now and like I can go hide in the forest? Like, no, man, I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, And there we were in our tights, you know, our total, the same outfits we'd wear at a sport climbing competition. Like he had pink tights with lace on the side. I'm so tempted to do a Shapoopy <laughs> impression right now, but I'm sure mine sucks, so I'm not going to. But, right. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we, but then later to his amazement and mine, we passed Steve Gerberdine and um, oh, and Bankston, um, who were kind of like the hardcore best single wall and a push sort of guys. And we passed them in the snowflakes and they were doing nose in a day. They probably did it in a total respectable time of 10 or 12 hours. We happened to do it in eight, which was the record because the old record was nine. And when I got to the top and I didn't have a 50 pound or 100 pound haul bag and gear hanging all over me, I had probably 15 pounds of gear on me between mm-hmm. the rack and the rope we had. Um, and we hiked off and we were down by the afternoon and we actually had sandwiches and beer with my parents in lounge chairs. It's just like, this is cool. You can do a big expanse of rock in a morning or a long day and come down and be back at your lounge chair and have a beer and a sandwich right and i thought that's kind of the coolest time frame adventure i think my body ate that up it's like let's go hard for eight hours or 10 hours and be back to camp Mm -hmm. um just totally loved it so every chance i got that steve invited me on you know son of heart or the shield or whatever uh whatever hard route i'm like well will we be done by four for sandwiches you know right. and i'd get stuck and we'd be up there for 30 hours and we'd be miserable but you know it was done and over with so he made me just love it and then mm-hmm. people would come to the valley and they'd want to do the nose and i'd want to climb with these different people whether it'd be lynn hill the famous lynn hill or i don't know uh wolfgang came and i almost wolfgang gula came and i almost climbed with him on the nose just because he was in town and I knew him from staying with him in Europe. Um, but I got to climb with all these other great people. Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rodden. I took Beth Rodden up her first big wall, which was the nose. And um, it became this sort of introduction I could easily talk to and go climbing with or adventuring with anybody in the climbing community. Mm-hmm. And be done by yeah, mid-afternoon. And, you know, and it's different than going bouldering with somebody and I don't mean to be little bouldering, but if you went sport climbing with someone for a day you may or may not remember it 20 years ago but the nose is an adventure it's a huge commitment you know mm-hmm. it's 
it's something that takes people days and days normally. And so I started writing down who I had climbed it with and journaling everything because I just thought it was so incredible. And um, that again, back to the book, is I've climbed with 88 different people and I, I logged in the appendix each thing, at least a sentence or two about every single ascent and just love it. The place where it is, the uh, the climbing on it is diverse and the weather's awesome. I, I always tell people at um, Main Street audiences when I talk to them, I'm a t-shirt and shorts climber. I'm not the M word, the mountaineer. But right. Yet, you know, the nose is this combination of t-shirt and shorts climbing yet damn big and right. a huge endeavor. It's not doing a small thing. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the uh, about the whittling down of the record because in addition to your 100th climb, uh, this talks a bit about that pursuit. And you are currently the record holder with Mr. Honnold. Yeah. With weather like this, we should hold it for a little while. Yeah. Right. The Yosemite <laughs> just got evacuated, you were saying, yeah. right when we it's sat down. dumping rain there. Yeah. My record's good for at least a couple of weeks. Yeah. You can try it out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> is, is, that, <laughs> is that something that, that keeps you awake at night? No, not at all. No. <laughs> it's going to be pretty hard to chip it down, but it might happen. Uh, Brad Gobright's been going, kind of working around some of the tricks up there. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. You 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 did it in eight hours, or you said you held the record eight hours and five minutes with five Steve minutes. Schneider. Yeah. Um, and then then it became a, a tit for tat for a little bit, and uh, some Europeans took it back, which probably got your goat um, when the Hebrews when the Hebrews were the record setters. Uh, but let's talk about that, the pursuit of this, this kind of keeping this record alive. And I guess, I guess I kind of have some questions around that, but, but right. when did you start kind of think, I mean, as soon as you, well, you guys yeah, lost let's the record, go back to that like, first yeah, time. It okay. was like about a week later after me and Steve got the record, Dave Schultz and uh -huh. Peter Croft did it in six forty, right? An mm -hmm. hour and 25 minutes faster than us. Okay. And this was, in the New York Times, the Denver Post, the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, these guys break the record, da, 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 da. no mention of Steve or Hans, right? And I'm like, wow, they did, you know, believe me, I thought that was impossible for me and Steve to go an hour and 20 minutes faster or me and anybody, right? Like those guys are certainly like these locals that have an advantage, they're immortal and all this stuff. So no one, but the next year I went and climbed the route with Andy Puvel or Andrus Puvel as I call him. Um, 10 years my younger and um, I used to compete against Andy in competitions I'm like hey you know Andy let's go do this let's go climb outside together and we didn't think that we were going to get a record or anything but we just happened to start the clock I mean it was by chance let's just start the watch and see how long it does take us and to our utter amazement we did it in six hours and one minute uh -huh. well Dave Schultz and Peter Kauf the following week or so did it in four hours and 48 minutes right an hour and 13 minutes faster than us. Right. And this was all over the news and da 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 da. So, wait, wait, had, had you guys at this point, had, had, any, had there been a, a summit, a meeting or whatever to codify the, the rules? No. Not no. yet. But we generally knew that it's, you start you step it, up and touch the Where tree. the topo, you know, what Super Topo says pitch one is, and then um, you hit the anchor bolts where, okay. you, where you walk off, right? Okay. And this was amazing. Like, 
I happened to see Peter Kauf the following spring, and I said, hey, he was doing a slideshow in Santa Barbara. I went up to him, said hello. He didn't know me that well, but he knew who I was. I'm like, eh, good job on speed, descent of the nose. And he had just gotten the Piton Award, P-O-T-T-O-R, whatever, uh, uh, European pronunciation. He won right. that Piton Award and like all these accolades for these things. And I'm like, man, that's incredible. Good job, you know, and said, we should climb together sometime just so people don't think we're like taking the record back and forth from each other. And he's like, nah, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, joking that I'm turning red, like what, you know? Um, But he was a good sport. He's like, yeah, I'll meet you in a month or so. And um, (laughs) my book goes through how kind of silly it was, but like I meet him and we're like, oh, well, what do we want to do? I don't know. Let's climb the nose. So we climb the nose. We do it in 422, which was faster than him, him and Dave's. I mean, I joke like I didn't call my mom or didn't tell anybody we got the record because I just figured Dave and Peter would go up the next week and go faster than that, right? But I don't know, Dave was busy or Peter was divvy and they didn't think much of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when I wrote the book and sent the the draft to Peter, he goes, well, you know, we never climbed it to try to get the record on it. We had no interest whatsoever in that. We just were trying to link the Salathe in the nose or Sentinel and Salathe in the nose. We just wanted to do more routes in a day. We didn't care about the record on the nose. Just by chance, they broke it. So. Right. <laughs> and I didn't really understand that until he corrected our draft, which is great. You know, oh, so cool. he wasn't competitive cool. with us at all. He was just trying to fit more <laughs> climbing in, you know. So, I think a lot of competition uh, ends up being like that. One side is like really like <laughs> serious about it. And the other side is like, Okay, sure, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, so, but I mean, at at some point, you guys, you know, when you're lopping off hours, you know, then starting stopping the watch, all that sort of thing, and then also your tactics probably are, you know, here and there. We're trying to go a little faster, but once you get down to minutes and then seconds, I mean, when did you like really start to, you know, sit it sit at home and and you know start to figure out some some ways to cut these like that pretty much was like next turning point nine years later right when dean and timmy took it out okay um and i should point out this is you you asked like why a hundred times why did i just not do it but i would be in europe in like mid 90s and i'd win some world cup speed event and as it happened there you'd go to Lyon or uh, paris or wherever the comp was being held and we'd all be in Maybe maybe some cheap hotel or something, or a nice hotel if they were European. And you're mingling with these people, and then you might see them at the crag on Monday or Tuesday. You know, you'd run into Didier or Francois Legrand or somebody, or and then <clears throat> some Italian climber or French climber or German climber, probably not a French climber, but a German or Italian climber coming to you, hey, congratulations on the speed record, you know. And I'd be like, well... You know, in one of my humble moments, I'd be like, well, I only beat the Czechoslovakian by a second or something, you uh-huh. know. And the the competitive Italian climber would be like, no, no, I'm not talking about last weekend. I'm talking about the nose record. You set the nose record, you know, right. with Peter Croft. And I'm like, wow, that was five years ago, you know. And it stuck in my head that here I am on the other side of the planet and they they think the nose route is just the most incredible thing in the world. Um, they could give two shits about me running up something 15 seconds up a wall in Lyon, France, you know? Right. But the nose record. So when Dean and Timmy took it back in 2002, 2001, nine years after me and Peter, I was like, oh, I got to get right back on it. And so I just grabbed whoever I could, which happened to be Jim Herson. 
And we, to our utter astonishment, did it in uh, like two minutes faster than Dean and Timmy. And I joke that like, oh, you should give people a week or two to hold the record. But Dean and Timmy went up a couple days later and just smashed us by like 34 minutes. They did it in 324. Right. Yeah. So they had it down. They were cooking fast. And um, then like a year went by, Yuji showed up and wanted to climb the Salathay and work on other stuff. And I'm like, hey, usually let's go up a run up the nose to just kind of get used to granite. And we did it in 327. We didn't get the record, but uh-huh. we missed it by three minutes. And it was Yuji's first time ever trying to go up the nose in right. a day fast. So I was like, can we go again? You know, and he's like, yeah. So he was that same sort of sight because he had climbed it the year before with me in like a day and a half. We were trying to see if we could free it. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we freed everything but the great roof and the um, changing corners. Sure. But we came back and did it a week later in 248. So, and, and this is where we started looking at me and you just started looking at the top and go, well, will you take this lead? I'll take that lead. How can we pendulum through? And we even like, uh, you know, I even did like a little, not a podcast, but what would we call those? A webinar where I invited people to come and I put up little post-it things of the thing goes, hey, you know, and I think I may have had 10 people sign on to the call. And we said, how can we go faster? And we kind of workshopped it, right? Okay. And Tom Frost was on the call. Oh, nice. Which was totally <laughs> awesome. And he was like, why don't you guys do this on the pendulum, you know, and this, this, and like, he gave us ideas that kind of logistically helped us out, which is, and for those listeners who don't know, Tom Frost did the second ascent of the nose sure. in 1961. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, and probably was the birth of speed climbing, him and Royal Robbins, uh, found out that uh, they cut uh, they cut like years off the first ascent actually right. <laughs> three weeks right <laughs> no but um, Roper went up uh, the Steck Salathay in something like I don't know nine hours right which had never been done I think one time in a really long day but they went up and did it in nine hours and Royal's like well we got to show them how speed climbing really so him and Tom Frost went up and did it in six hours or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. and I tell that story because. 40 years to the day, or not the day, 40 years to the month or something, I went and did the Steck Salathay with Tom Frost and we did, we took like eight hours. And I'm like, shoot, I can't go faster than Royal Robbins, you know, 40 years ago. And they had pitons, right? They were pounding pitons. Me and Tom Frost had all these wow. fancy cams and yeah. stuff. And huh. yeah. Must anyway. have been, yeah, that's I mean, it was insane. a respectable time. Yeah, we did sure. it in eight hours, but not as fast as Yeah, I Royal mean, Tom Robbins Frost is, you know, he's not in his prime. Yeah. So that's a pretty good time, actually. Yeah. But back to where we were was that, you know, Eugene and I actually had to look at the topo and decide who's going to lead what. And this is one of the changes in sort of tactic was I'm like, Eugene, why are we switching leaders? Because when I catch up to you, I'm exhausted trying to keep up with you. And then I got a lead. That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you just lead the whole thing? And he's like, okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, it could have been either way. I could have led the whole thing or he led it, but I said, why don't you just lead the whole thing and I'll stay on the back end. And that was kind of this turn in thinking that that's just smarter. Right. So that's what we did. And it worked good for us. Uh huh. Yeah. And, uh, so let's keep, let's go down and finish the logical thing. Okay. And then I got some techie questions for you. So what, four years later, the yeah. Uber brothers got purportedly a million dollar filming budget, right. To do a documentary on getting the record on the nose and mm-hmm. doing these other things. And, that was a really bo- a big boon for the climbing community because they were getting paid all this money to haul loads oh, yeah. up for them. And I know so many dirtbags d- that like <laughs> made serious money hiking crap to the top of El yeah. Cap. 
during And I that. made this little audio CD set on how to climb the nose faster, right? And I came down and gave it to the Uber brothers and go, oh, you guys should listen to this, you know? And they're like, no, no, we'll be fine. We just go faster. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, you guys, listen to my CD. But, you know, I talked through with them how they were doing different things. And funny. Was that when, CD available commercially? Oh, yeah. I sold it thousands of them. Is it still out there? Uh, now people download it. I, I actually, oh. I'll give you one, actually, oh, because sick. it's a collector's item. People download it now. Okay, um, cool. So if you see me somewhere out there and you guys hit me up and see if I have one with me. You're just trying like to get them those, out of my garage. You're like you know? one of those bands that like have a sh- a boxes of right, CDs right. in their garage. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, the Hubers. They, they don't get the record for the movie, and it's this award-winning documentary of them not getting the record and some other things. But they proudly came back the following year and then got the record kind of off the film. Right. Um, and what's really proud did, is they did, they broke our record by like two or 30 seconds, right? And Alex uh, Uber emails me and goes, what is the exact time you guys got? And it turns out there was two different times listed because this is where you asked about, you know, where people agree. It used to be, we always stopped the time at the bolts where people walk off and then the route slopes at, you know, less than 45 degrees. There's a tree right. 80 feet past that. And Dean and Timmy tagged the tree, and there's these famous pictures of them sure. tagging the tree. Yeah. So we decided, all right, we'll, we'll just all stop the time at the tree, which is about 30 seconds farther, right? Okay. And the Uber brothers legitimately beat us at either spot. Right. But they went back three days later and broke it by a full two and a half or three minutes because they felt like they needed to make a definitive difference. Sure. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> that was proud of them. That's yeah. good. Did, did he get, did Tomas get hurt on the filming? He did. Yeah. He took a, like, I don't know, 20, 30 foot fall in the, the section right before Camp 5. Got a big old black and blue bruise on his hip, right. halfway down his leg. Mess. Yeah. And then Alex, like, I don't know if he broke his ankle or something, but he was right. up just positioning a camera on the other side of the valley and, like, fell down a scree slope or something. And poor guy. I mean, they're just getting beat up trying to make the thing happen. Right, right. Yeah. Did the film ever come out? Oh, yeah. It's, it's called AM Limit, right? Oh, I don't know if it has a, uh, English. Subtitles. Anyway, yeah, English. I'll have to look it up. I'll see if I can find it. I was on the route here. doing it in a day with a buddy of mine, Peter Darmy. We were doing the oldest nose ascent, combined age. Mm-hmm. He was, I think, 59 at the time or something. And they came running by us. And I'm like, go, you guys, go. I even had Go Ubers painted on my helmet and stuff. Nice. So, um, we were totally into it for him. It's fun. Of course, the next year I got it back with Yuji, but right, uh, uh, that was fun. Yuji got so much psych from his homeland. He's like a huge star. I mean, for those who don't know, Yuji is like a national hero. Right. He's yeah. A, he told me there was like a seven foot high picture of his head in the local subway. You know, totally embarrassing to him, but his parents love it. You know, right? He's yeah. Just no, he, yeah. It's a different different ball game in yeah. terms of like them uh, elevating climbing over there. So. Right. So we went and got the record, but like the, their TV wanted us to get the record for them. So after me and Yuji got the record, he came back three months later in the fall and we broke our own record by uh, seven or eight minutes in right. 237, which was just super fun. And by did, that time- Did those, you lose it again before Honold or you're just chipping away at your own record? No, uh, of course the Valley, not the Valley Uprising, but- uh, Sender Films did the the Race for the Nose film, which uh-huh. is totally wonderful. Sean Leary and that, or Stanley and Dean Potter got the record, right? They they beat it by what is oh the famous quote from Dean We beat it by twenty seconds, but you know, twenty seconds we got the record on the nose. It's just so cool. 
yeah, the footage is super fun of them at the top topping out and just excited like like me i guess about getting the record on the nose mm-hmm. and so what was here's the story up to that alex was trying to get the record with yuli steck before them that season and i was talking to alex on the phone trying to give him ideas trying to be the older mentor going yeah you guys could do this and that and who's leading what and then of course yuli had like a 90 foot fall right and they decided maybe they shouldn't go for the record <laughs> and they had some respectable times i think they got right. it in three hours or something but once Sean and Dean got the record, I got a call on my phone and I'm looking at my phone. Hey, Alex Honnold's calling me. Okay. Turns out he's calling me because he knew I was going to go and try to get the record back from Stanley and, and Dean. And he goes, hey, will you go with me? And I'm like, uh, you know, I got to ask Yuji permission first if I can go team up with you. And just kind of joking. I'm like, sure, I'll go. So that was super nice for him to ask me to go with him uh-huh. instead of just being his mentor be partner on it right yeah and that's the that's sort of i that's where you were talking about the alex like well we don't need all this gear and you're like wait no i think i I do want to bring some gear and that actually i end up climbing a lot with younger climbers uh particularly hayden kennedy and and i've i just totally cracked up because you know if you can picture it i've literally stood on one side of a rack that he's sorting and as he's like tossing off gear you just especially the big cams because i think you actually said like number threes yeah yeah. and he's tossing the big cams off because you know hand jams don't need gear and i'm like walking around him and then like putting it back on the other side of the rack again like we're both leading pitches on their youth like we're taking a couple of these cams with us i'm sorry and and the same thing like i'm gonna go faster because i have the cams Right. The weight of them is not going to be the thing that slows me down. But um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about climbing with Alex. Um, and you know, the the psych is probably really similar, but you guys have an age difference. Uh, what was that like? You know, tr- busting it out up there with with a guy like Alex. Well, the first time I climbed with him was the nose, and it was in the fall of 2011. Yeah, 2011, and it's just two guys meeting for the first time going climbing, like we're going through the rack and he didn't push too hard because, you know, he had, it would be like me going with Tom Frost and trying to tell Tom Frost or Royal Robbins what the rack should be. I'm not, I have no business, right? Tell him. And I, and I thought maybe I'd get a little respect like that, but, and I'd say that he gave me a tiny, tiny bit of like, right. okay, Hans, we'll take those pieces. <laughs> yeah. Cause he didn't know me enough yet, but knew that, uh, I'd, I'd been up El Cap a couple times. Uh, but after the first run, he's like, you know, Hans, we didn't even use this piece and you didn't fall. So why are we taking that piece again? You know, as if that's justification. <laughs> well, you didn't it fall. Is, so why bring any gear? World. It totally is in his world. <laughs> in the rest of our world, it's not. So, um, I mean, we, we went up at an, I don't know, five and a half hours or something our first right. time. And we came back a week later and did it again. And we probably got rid of a couple pieces of gear, but, uh, with Alex, I decided, I decided, we decided I would like to lead some of the route. And I knew that he's so fast that I probably couldn't stay behind him, jug, switching from jugging to climbing to whatever. So I said, I should let me lead the first half, which is kind of the easier half, so that I can keep you busy because I can lead faster than I can follow. Mm-hmm. And, and it just is better at the big king swing is a really nice place to transfer. I swing over, he swing over, and he just goes right into the lead. And right. So logistically, it made sense to do that one switch and put the, the strong young guy on the steep part leading at the end. So 
that was our tactic. And, you know, it says in the, you, I want you to read the book, but you actually don't have to read the book. You can just look up this article at Rock and Ice. But um, with Alex, it was funny. Like I wanted to lead the stove legs and sure, both me and Alex can free climb the stove legs, but you know, 10 C, 10 D off with climbing is strenuous. And when you just plug a cam in instead of your fist and can yank on it, you can move, you know, I, well, the way I do it is I do three cam fist, three cam fist. So I'm doing a free movement on one hand and then the cam on the other, it just clicks faster and mm-hmm. you can just hand over hand go really fast. Certainly I could do it with hands, but then you're kind of risking, is your hands in perfect condition that day? Or are you going to get a goby or whatever? And like, it's nice to have the cam if you need to just leave it behind and clip in. So I wanted to take that. And uh, Alex is like, well, look, we've done this route three times, now four times, now five times. And you've never fallen. Why are we bringing that? So, uh, And he, of course, doesn't use it at all in the top half. So Right. So I, I kind of want to get into that a little bit. Um, because at some point, you know, we just talked about the hubris taking these giant whippers. Yuli took a giant whipper. Uh, my friend HK took a giant whipper on it. So, you know, are you, I mean, are you ever like, are you sacrificing safety for speed? Well, of course you are in terms of your personal look at it. Are you ever like, okay, whoa. Um, this is starting to get like a little bit out of control or do you feel pretty much like your system is, is well within your like, um, idea of risk in terms of running things out or, or any of that sort of stuff? I feel very well within my limits when I speed climb the nose. Okay. And, and I kind of equate it to like when you're soloing, I mean, I've sold like Royal Arches well below my ability and like, oh, I'm on the, whatever the crux of the Royal Arches is for you, whoever you are, you know, then maybe it's the five, eight faced, the exit or the five, seven face or something. And you're very cautious. There's all there is, is uh above the neck composure, right? Your head's ability to like calm and go. But like when you have a rack of gear on you, if you're on the nose, there's no place you can't clip a bolt or place a piece of gear. No place really. So if you're up, 10 feet above the last piece or 30 feet above the last piece and you get the feeling like you don't have it, like you're you're pumping out, you're scared, you just throw a piece in. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much why I kind of have pushed for more gear, spread it out farther, go fast, than go light and go fast. Because you don't want to second guess when you're speed climbing like, can I just kind of run this little piece, right? Can I just pull this one little 11A move and go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you just say, forget it. I'm just going to clip a bolt and I'll just yank on it, you know, or right. I'm going to leave a piece here and, and go on because I know I have one extra piece planned for this section or something. That's always been the the divider for me. And, you know, we make a rule and, you know, rules are meant to be broken. But like, if I don't have three good pieces between me and my partner, and I'm on the back end, I don't leave where I'm at until there's a fourth piece you okay. know, or a fifth or whatever. If there's only, like I've, when I climbed with Peter Croft the first time on the nose speed record, I think I jokingly yelled up him, hey, Peter, remember you're not soloing because he was up in the stove legs 50 feet above me and had nothing in. Sure. And I'm at uh, the two bolt anchor down there. I'm like, uh, I can't start simul climbing yet, Peter, because you don't have anything in. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. He goes, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. And he throws something in, you know, and I waited till he had two pieces in or, 
and a bolt, you know, before I started climbing. So, I, you know, Yuji and I, both dads with wife and kids, and we, we say safety first, you know, fun second, speed third. And I said that to Alex and he goes, well, can we switch the priority just this one day? You know, <laughs> what the speed and the fun? Yeah. Okay. Speed before fun, but not okay. speed before safety. Right. <laughs> okay, so, cool. Right. So yeah. fun came third. Yeah. And I've seen the Ubers right there in front of me do things that I wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of them simul climbing on a single point, but right. you know, they didn't fall to their deaths. They, they, they're, they're experienced climbers. Sure. Sure. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to sort of say about uh, about your your nose thing? And then I got a couple more things, and 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 we're we're actually rolling into the end here. Only that I, I've had the good fortune to climb with Brad Go Right. I climbed uh-huh. the nose with him and Miranda. Miranda's okay. the uh, young lady who's been the first woman to solo the nose in a day. Okay. So the three of us did it to try to get the fastest three person ascent, which is kind of a joke because you find a niche thing. And we each led for two and a half hours, and we topped out in seven and a half hours. Nice. So. And then me and Brad wrapped on these lines that were fixed and tried to do it again and got halfway up and it was just too cold for me. He could have kept going, but um, he is uh, incredibly fast and um, it'll be fun to see him nail the record in the next season or two, I think. Yeah, you think so? Uh, He's got the skills. I don't know why he wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of this interesting, there eventually has to be an end. You know, you have to move physical matter through space, and that takes, like, at least some yeah. type of time. Um, but it's interesting to hear that maybe that, that there's some seconds to be shaved still. More than that, yeah. Yeah. That's a good, a number one question is, you know, the old guy who's got the record at the 100-meter dash, whatever, will ever go faster than 9.8 seconds or something, but... They always I, say no. Right, right, <laughs> Yeah. The cocky bastards. (laughs) Um, There are spelunkers that come a couple times a year and they jug all of El Cap. They string a rope like right over the Don Wall and the record time is 48 minutes. Right. Just jugging. Right. So you're just jugging. So, you know, just the physical movement of covering 3,000 feet can be climbed in 48 minutes. Right. So I'm fairly certain someone can climb the nose. Those guys aren't always the paragon of fitness either. No, but it was a guy in his late 40s that set that record. So that's the endurance thing. I will say no one will ever get the record. And here it is. Never get the speed record on the nose if their combined age is under 45. Okay. All right. So two 22 and a half year olds is the the youngest. All right, you gym rats. You heard him. (laughs) I can't. What did you say? 45? Yeah, I'll even go 50. Okay. 50. Because you have to have your driver's license to practice trad climbing. You know, sure. Gym climbing, you don't need a driver's license. Yeah, so you're not going to get there on gym climbing. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, and the book, again, is On the Nose. And uh, it hasn't even been out that long. came out September 1st, okay. and they had to print it three times now because yes. they underestimated our, our reach. Excellent. So. Um, so, last thing, I guess, as we roll out of here, uh, what, what are your, you know, your nose thing, obviously you're going to continue to be this ambassador to the nose, which is, it's, I like the full circle thing. You know, you started this by talking about how, how I've uh, never been called ambassador to the nose. I'm like access fund ambassador, but well, I like the, that the, ambassador the, to the nose. The nice. thing I'm seeing is like Shapoopy, you said like, Oh, he would just tie me in and yank me up these walls. And it sounds like, you know, at least in the last few years, even in the last decade, like, you know, you, actively said to these climbers that showed up like hey 
do you want to go up the nose? Like, let's go up the nose, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, you said, oh, I did it the first time she ever did it. I did it the first time he ever did it. Yeah. And I can't imagine that's going to be something you're going to stop doing. No, I, mean, I got plans this season. So. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, I don't know if it's corny or not, but yeah, the ambassador to the nose. But what about other climbing goals? You know, is this something that you, you know, you, you talked about your friend, Jim, Jim Herson, who's like the amazing dad climber with his kids and stuff like that. What, what are your goals uh, for climbing besides, you know, besides your ambassadorship? I just, I just honored you with on the nose. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd love for my kids to climb in Yosemite. They they have climbed some. My daughter went up the nose the first four pitches. Um, my son is threatening, saying he might want to go up this coming season. Oh, cool. So getting those kids up, it would be fun. Um, I mean, I've dabbled in other things. My, my knees aren't so great for hiking, but I've done like the California 14ers, and that sort of adventure climbing is pretty fun. I'd like to go... You know, I think your question is what's next maybe in climbing, but. Uh, actually, it's a little more of just like where, what is it to your life now? Whether it's not, I don't really, my question isn't like, well, what's on your doc, <coughs> what's on your docket for this spring? But, you know, climbing in your life, it's had all these different, different things that it became and, and you moved on from or whatever. But what does it look like in your life now? I don't know. I can't escape it. I don't think. Um, so what is climbing like in my life? It's, it's consuming. I mean, it's, I'm in the community. I, I go on a book tour and I, I ask in the audience, I raise your hand if you've climbed El Cap and at Berkeley REI, 20 people raise their hand. I said, how many of you people climbed El Cap with me? And nine people leave their hand raised. Right. I'm like, Oh, and I did the same thing at the, the, the Pearl street, uh, Boulder bookstore, 20 people raise their hand in the audience that they've climbed El Cap. How many of you climbing with me? Six people raised their hand. Um, so I'm I'm in the climbing community. I'm, I love it. Just, you know, love that I've got such a reach of different people that I've climbed with. And, and I think I'm going to continue climbing with different people, whether it's Hazel Finley visiting from England or Anna Pfaff or Chris. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can do a live broadcast. That's insane that, you know, there's good cell reception on El Calf. I mean... As evidenced by right. the Donwall media right. thing, right? Um, that'd be pretty fun. Huffing and puffing, we can do a podcast from the King Swing. Nice. Just just love it, you know? 52, and I feel like I can keep kind of climbing for another decade or two. All right. Cool. All right, well, thanks for sitting down, Hans. And uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I'm glad we finally got to meet. Yeah, me too. Thanks for taking the time. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks a lot to Hans for sitting down, making the time. Couldn't tell, maybe, but it was quite early in the morning. It's like 7.30, and uh, that's pretty early to be recording the Enorma cast. So it was the only time we could make it happen, and I'm so glad that Hans did. All right, by the time you guys hear this, I will probably have conquered Cody, Wyoming, by the time you are listening, at least to Barstool. But, uh, but yeah, I've been you know, climbing some ice the last couple of years, a couple, couple few pitches and, and two two years so you know don't call it a comeback i mean seriously don't call it a comeback okay folks be safe out there and remember to check your knot
your sensei. Bow to your sensei!